Normally we read the Bible and then uh, one of us will preach from the, the part of the Bible we've read. I am going to read the Bible, but I'm going to do an introduction first and then we'll, we'll come to the Bible passage we're going we're gonna to look at. And as Ian's already said and slightly stole my thunder at the start of the service, we're, we're starting this new um, series and the Psalms of Ascents. If you open your Bible to the, the middle, so if you've got a Bible, there's one in front of you, and you to open it to the middle, roughly, you'll find yourselves in the book of Psalms. Um, the, the book of Psalms is, is a songbook. If you've never been uh, in this church, any church before, um, you might be, not be aware of that. Maybe you are. The biggest book of the Bible, the one that covers the, the most pages in any given Bible, is a songbook made up of 150 songs, some with known authors, some unknown. Some are very obviously musical. You can see the, the refrains, like the choruses. Some are poetic, some familiar, and some not so much. And I wonder whether that surprises you. If you were, uh, maybe you're, you're new to church, or, or maybe if you had to put yourself outside of your life experiences, would you expect to find, and would the, the world outside expect to find, in the biggest book in the Bible to be a songbook? I wonder if the answer might for some of us be, well, yeah, that, that does surprise me. Because isn't the Bible supposed to be just a, a list of do's and don'ts, a list of, of rules? Maybe you're thinking, well, I have never really thought about it, but in some ways it's not surprising because Christians do seem to sing a lot. Maybe if this is your first time in church, you're like, well, clearly I'd expect a songbook in here because that's all they seem to do is sing this lot anyway. We do like singing. Um, but the biggest chunk, biggest individual book is a songbook. And I kind of want to just, as we, as we start, open that up and go, that shouldn't surprise us as we get into the Bible. As we discover who the God of the Bible is and who he, he calls his people to be, we find, well, A, that God sings. So let me read this to, verse to you. It should be up on the screen now. Okay. From Zephaniah 3. The Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. The God of the Bible is a God who sings. And the beings that he creates, angels and the heavenly beings, they, they sing too. So maybe you're familiar with the Christmas story, the angels who appear, who appear to the shepherds. What do they do as they share the good news with the shepherds about this baby that's been born? Well, they share the news and then they, they sing. There's this great choir of angels singing. Okay, this is what they sing. Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favour rests. We find in the, the last book of the Bible, we find the, the heavenly creatures surrounding the throne of God and singing praise to God. And then we find that God's people are commanded, called to, to sing to God and to each other okay so this is ephesians 5 a letter in the uh, the, the later part of the bible it says this be filled with the spirit speaking to one another with psalms hymns and songs from the spirit sing and make music from your heart to the lord so it's a singing god who creates singing beings and who calls his people to to sing and if that's the background then we go well maybe it's not surprising that this big chunk in the middle of our bibles is a, a songbook Here's some words to sing. 
for those of us who are not so creative. And I definitely put myself in that category. What is singing about? Why do people sing? Why do we sing as a church? Singing is about worship. It's an overflow of the emotions and desires of our heart. Worship is what we were made for. It comes naturally to us. And you don't have to be in a church to to see that. Go to a sporting occasion. Some of us were watching the cricket last week, the World Cup final. And what happens as people watch on and, and see greatness? They sing. They delight in it. Something, it may be one of the, the few good things about listening to sport, I'm a big into sport, as opposed to watching sport, is that you get to hear the sounds of the crowd. And you just suddenly, the commentators are talking, and they're talking maybe about cricket or football, and then suddenly coming out of the background comes a, a swell of voices as people just can't contain themselves with the excitement of what they're seeing. We are, all of us, a, a worshipping people. We see greatness and we see things that we admire and we see people that we admire and we, we worship it. And often we sing about it. We worship sportsmen and sportswomen. We worship people that we are attracted to, whether romantically or, or, or people that we see something in that we want to be like. And we worship them when we place them on a pedestal. Singing comes from a heart of worship. The Psalms are written uh, over a period of time, this, this songbook. They're at least two and a half thousand years old. And yet, even though they're that old, they, they speak into our lives. They reveal what we are like. Because they're written by real people in real circumstances that whilst the, the, the details might be different, they might be in different country and speak a different language... People don't change. People are fundamentally the same now as they were two and a half, three thousand years ago. And so this songbook of people who are approaching God reveals what we are like, reveals our own hearts, both the good and the bad. But they also instruct our hearts. Because as a church... As we gather to, to worship God week by week, that's what we do. That's why we sing, that's why we pray. We approach God because he has reached out to us. We respond to God because he has acted towards us. We come to worship God because we recognize at the deepest level that God is worthy of worship and, and we were made to worship him. The experience of the church across the generations is a people who say God is, is worthy of worship And we find our happiness and our rightness and our createdness when we are worshipping God. And we come to these psalms and they teach us how to worship. They give us the words to say. They reveal the, the nature of who God is and what he's done. And they teach us how to respond to that. How to rightly approach God. Not in some faux way. But in reality, because the Psalms are brutal in their reality, brutal about failing, brutal about doubts, brutal about fears. This is not some great, hey, we're amazing, God's amazing, let's just all get involved in that. 
This is, we are messed up. But God's there. We're doubting, but, but we're going to turn to God with those doubts. We're faithless, but God is faithful. These are songs that show us how sinful, broken, suffering, angry, disappointed people approach a God that they know deep down loves them, cares about them, is invested in them, but whose experiences are up and down, good and bad, joyful and sorrowful. One of the questions that you might be asking is, well, is church for me? Is this church for me? Is Christianity for, for me? One of the things that these songs will do is show us that the reality that the church is a group of real people in real circumstances depending on God. And the Psalms just strip away any, any shine. Any, oh, well, this is nice. Sometimes, yeah. Sometimes our church is nice. I think it's often nice and loving and warm and welcoming. But, but there's also just the reality of life being played out, but in the context of a relationship and a turning towards God. Is Christianity for me? Well, it's certainly for people like you. And for people like me. But one of the other things that we want to do as we turn to these Psalms of Ascents is we want to ask the question, how can we worship God given our current circumstances? Maybe it's not easy. Maybe it took everything you had to come out the door to church today to join with us. The Psalms are going to show us that no matter the circumstances, there is a way to trust God. There are words that we are given that we can sing or, or pray to God to express the doubts and fears, but, but also the dependence upon God. So that's the introduction to the Psalms. Here's where we're going. We're going to firstly, or secondly, I guess, intro, we're going to map out the territory of the Psalms of Ascents, these group of 15 Psalms, to have a look at the purpose of them as a whole, and then we're going to take the first one, Psalm 120, and look at that together. So firstly, mapping out the territory. What are the, the Psalms of Ascents? So here's where I want you to turn to Psalm 120. So if you've got one of the church Bibles, it's page 622. So we're not actually going to read it now, but we're going to pick through some of the, the key features in this group of psalms. And the first thing that we find is that each of them have got this title, A Song of Ascents. These are the only psalms out of the 150, so from 120 through to 134, that have got this title, A Song of Ascents. And they've been grouped together by the, the editor. We don't know who that was. We don't know who he or she was, but they put them together so that as we read the Bible, they're grouped. They come as a, as a group. Now, why? Why are they called the Song of Ascents? We don't know. Sorry about that. But we don't. We know they could, they've been in the Bible. 
from before Jesus' time, when Jesus was reading in the, the first century, and they, the Jewish people at that time, that these psalms were, had been collected into their scriptures, into their holy book. But we don't know why, for certain. We don't know how they were used, for certain. There are some educated guesses. So there are 15 of these psalms. Let me give you some of the, what they might have been used for, okay? Some of the suggestions. Some people say it's a, a musical thing, okay? So there is these 15 psalms that are to be sung together, and you start at Psalm 120, and then you ascend musically. So you're going to go up a key each time. I, I don't, I, I'm not a singer, but that sounds like a lot of keys to go up. But this idea that the, the title, a song of ascending, a song of going up, was a, a musical term. So that as they'd be sung in the temple by the, the temple singers, they would literally be, okay, we're going to go up and up and up and up. I'm not going to try and demonstrate that to you. You'd be thankful to know. So it could be that. Or it could be about the temple. As the priest went up to the temple, apparently there were 15 steps. And they would have sung one of these, the suggestion is, on one of these psalms on each of the steps as they went up the temple to, to do their duties before God. Now, the theme of the temple is prominent in these psalms. So as you read through, you'll find the temple comes up. Zion, Jerusalem, the city of God, the mountain, and the temple. The most common explanation is that these psalms were sung by the people of God as they went up, okay, so the song of ascents, going up, ascending, as they went up to Jerusalem. So the temple, the place where God had um, established his dwelling amongst his people, the place where the people interacted with God through the priests in the Old Testament, was on top of a mountain in Jerusalem. So literally would stand above, as you came into Jerusalem, you'd see it on the mountain top. And the suggestion is that these are songs that the people would sing as they came for special feasts to Jerusalem, as they walked up the hill to the temple, as they ascended, going up to worship God, to meet with God. That's the most common explanation. Like I say, we, we don't know for certain. But there are themes coming through, and certainly the temple is that the, the heart of so look down at Psalm 122, verse 1. I rejoice with those who said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. That is the temple. Psalm 125, start of that. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be shaken but endures forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people, both now and forevermore. You've got this hilly image, but also the, the heart of that is God's hill, where the temple is. I'll flip over the page, Psalm 132, verse 8. Arise, Lord, and come to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. May your priests be clothed with righteousness, with your righteousness. May your faithful people sing for joy. This call to God to come to where he dwells, where he meets with the people. The temple is a, a focus. And, and then look, turn to Psalm 134, the, the last of the Psalm of Ascents. Where do they end up? Praise the Lord, all you servants of the Lord who minister by night in the house of the Lord. Lift up your hands in the sanctuary and praise the Lord. 
may the Lord bless you from Zion, he who is the maker of heaven and earth. That, that's the end point. And the writer of that psalm is, is, is in the temple. He's looking around at the, the workers. And so he's gone, and we'll see shortly from Psalm 120, from being far away to ending up in the temple. So the suggestion is, is that the people of God, after the exile, so that the history of the Old Testament shows us that God calls himself a people, he establishes them in a, in a kingdom in Israel, but then they disobey, they turn their back on him, and he scatters them. They are sent into exile. And then they come back. Some of them come back. And the suggestion is, is that as they come back, as they reestablish themselves in the land that God has given them, they come to this practice. They assemble these psalms, and they come to worship God, and they sing these psalms. As they come to, to know God, to approach God. So we have a collection of songs that move from outside the city, outside of Israel, excuse me, to the heart of the temple where God dwells and meets with his people. So let's think now about rhythms. If that's what the Psalm of Ascents are, that's the whole, this is the, the general picture that we've got, let's think about rhythms. Why does God give his people this collection of songs to be sung together, to be grouped together like that. Well, God knows that we are a people, humanity is a people that need order and rhythms. I wonder how many of you guys have got a morning routine, that you do the same thing every morning. Okay, so, so for some of us it goes like this, alarm goes off, check social media. And that's basically the heart of your routine. For some of us, it's, I cannot possibly function until I've had a cup of tea. I can't even talk to my spouse until I've had a cup of tea. I'm not mentioning any names, okay? We all probably have some sort of morning routine, a way that helps us to function. Maybe it's, you've got to have a shower before you do anything else. Maybe it's, I've got to brush my teeth because my breath stinks. I don't know. Some combination of caffeine, shower, or, or wash, teeth. Maybe opening your Bible and reading. We all have routines, but we also need routines and rhythms, I think, to function well. And actually what we find is that a God in the Bible who gives his people rhythms. So we find a God who gives us day and night. A time to work and live and be awake and generally engaging other people. And a time to sleep. A time to rest. We find in the creation account, God creates the world in six days and then rests on the seventh day. And why does he do it? Because he needs rest? No, because we need rest. We need this pattern of not just working all the time. But we need to stop. We need to physically rest. We need to mentally rest. We need to spiritually rest. We find a God who gives his people times where they are set aside to, to celebrate. Times to stop. And remember, we need rhythms because they keep us healthy. They keep us effective. Our church life has a rhythm, doesn't it? Once a week, on a Sunday, around this time, pretty much this time, every week, we, we gather. We gather as a people to worship God together. 
We stop from work, we stop from leisure, and we come together to sing to God, to pray to God, to hear from God's word, be read and preached, so that our hearts, our desires are shaped and molded, so that our, our sin is challenged, so that our hearts are encouraged, so that we can go back out into our weeks and, and live the life God has called us to. And we do it together. That's part of our rhythm. We don't do all do church on our own time. You know, it's not as if we're going to sit down today and go, when shall I do church this week? Uh, uh, maybe six o'clock on Wednesday. And somebody else says, well, I'm going to do two o'clock on Thursday. That really wouldn't be a rhythm, our rhythm, would it? It wouldn't function. But we have a rhythm that helps us to, to be effective and helps us to be healthy. And sometimes we need, and sometimes God gives us, patterns of words to go with the, the physical rhythms. Traditionally, that's been called liturgy. So if you've been to a, a more traditional church, uh, an Anglican church, you may have heard liturgy, where the same things are said at the same points every week. A rhythm of words to, to, to teach and instruct and to encourage and liturgy is something that we all have, whether we know it or not, and whether we call it liturgy or not. Let me tell you, okay, a couple of our keen family liturgies, one of which goes like this. I get home from work, we sit down for, for tea, and I ask Jenny how school was. And, Jenny, and I say, what did you do in school? And Jenny says, nothing. <laughs> Every day. And eventually we work through to find out something that she did in school that day. In the same way at bedtime as we, we put our girls down and hopefully eventually they go to sleep. We'll put them down in their beds. We'll try sometimes. Our, our attempted rhythm is to, to read the Bible and pray with them at night. Sometimes that happens, sometimes it doesn't, but that's generally our, our attempt at a, a rhythm. And a liturgy. We'll sing to them. We'll sing a couple of songs to them. Pretty much every night we'll sing, Jesus loves me this I know because the Bible tells me so. Because because it's important and because we want them to know it and remember it that's a keen liturgy i think other people given some of the smiles that are going on have had the same liturgy actually we often get our liturgy from parents and from what we've been taught by others don't we those same words that instruct us and the psalm of ascent is a liturgy a rhythm of words for a people to know and to learn that he's going to instruct a liturgy for the people of God going to worship God and the psalms of ascents help us to know the importance of coming before God of approaching him and the role of humility and of confession of who God is and what he's done so what characterizes the psalm of ascents then this liturgy what do we find well let me point out some of them some of them we've already talked about this outside to inside going up towards the temple but also we find a rhythm of individual to together so look down at psalm 123 starts off song of ascents i lift up my eyes to you to you who sit enthroned in heaven as the eyes of slaves look to the hands of their master, as the eyes of a female slave look to the hand of a mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he shows us his mercy. 
It starts with an I, but then quickly moves into a we. And there's something about that 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 we need to get, because we operate individually, but one of the things the Psalm of Ascents is teaching is, is to operate corporately, together. The Psalms of Ascents teaches about confession, a need to acknowledge our sin, our brokenness. There are, time and time again, cries for mercy, that God would look on us with with kindness, would not give us what we deserve. The themes of God's faithfulness, God's justice. There's the theme of looking forward. Look at Psalm 133. How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. It's this, wouldn't it be great if... Wouldn't it be great to experience this? But there's also a looking back. It's Psalm 126. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dreamed. They look back into their history. And they look back at how, presumably, as a post-exile people, God had brought them back. They're recalling the stories of the Bible accounts of Nehemiah and Ezra, God rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem and rebuilding the temple that had been destroyed. As we walk this journey together, we call this series, the, the, entitled this series, The Journey to Joy. A walk. A walk up with the liturgy God has given us. What's happening here is God is pulling his people, teaching his people to worship him in all of life. In every experience. And he does it in different ways for different circumstances, but together he calls them to to trust and faith. From the good and bad, from the easy and the difficult, from the comfortable and the uncomfortable, from Sundays and Mondays, together called to, to walk up to worship God. And so that's what we're going to do over the next few weeks. We're going to walk through this path. We're going to listen to the words that God gives us together. When you're here, and I know people are away over the summer, but we're going to walk up the mountain to worship God and to learn to worship God together. So that is a super long introduction, mapping out the territory. So, Psalm 120 knowing where we are starting from. Let's read Psalm 120 together. And point of order here, so the inscription, a song of ascent, that's part of the original Bible text. Often in our Bibles we'll see the bold headlines that have been added, headers. But this is, the song of ascent is is there in the original. It's important. So Psalm 120, a song of ascent. I call on the Lord in my distress. And he answers me. Save me, Lord, from lying lips and from deceitful tongues. What will he do to you? And what more besides, you deceitful tongue? He will punish you with a warrior's sharp arrows, with burning coals of the broom bush. Woe to me that I dwell in Meshech, that I live among the tents of Kedar. Too long have I lived among those who hate peace. I am for peace. But when I speak, they are for war. So here it is, the start of the the Pilgrim's Liturgy. Let's just pick out three things. 
Three things for us to focus on at the start of this. Firstly, the need for God. Secondly, the geography, where they're coming from. Thirdly, the desire for peace. So the need for God. It's there in verse 1. I call on the Lord in my distress and he answers me, save me, Lord. Talked about this a few weeks ago, didn't we? We talked about our marks of discipleship, the need, the posture of humility. Recognizing the psalmist, whoever he or she is, recognizes that they need God to act. And so they call on God. And even as they do that, they're expressing the belief that the God hears, that God cares. And both of those things are things that we can forget. We can sometimes get to the point where we, we question, does God even hear me? Maybe you've had that, it's, you've learned to, to pray and you've reached points in your prayer life where you almost just think, is there any point? Does God even hear? Am I just praying, my prayers bouncing off the ceiling? I've got to that point where you just say, does God even care? I've prayed about this so much. This experience is so hard. Does God even care? But, but the words teach us to, to trust, to put faith in the God who is there and the God who answers. Sometimes we just need to hear that, don't we? Our God answers prayer. Our God answers prayer. This highlights the need for the right posture before God. This starting point is key because, well, starting points are key. If we go astray at the start, we'll never be right halfway through, certainly not at the end. Do you remember before, time before sat-navs and Google Maps? If you used to go on a long journey and you'd sit down with a map and you'd work out where you need to go and you'd get instructions. You know, when you get, you could do the motorways maybe, but then you get near to your destination and you're like, okay. So when you get to this roundabout, you need to take the second exit, and then you're going to go for about half a mile, past the pub on the right, and then the second left. And after that, you're going to go right, left, third, right. And if you get the first step wrong, without Google Maps and without a sat-nav, you're stuffed. If somebody tells you slightly the wrong information, they tell you the pub's on the right, but it's actually on the left, and you just keep driving until you actually eventually find a pub on the right. And you've driven 15 miles and you're actually in a different county. Well, in the same way, at the start of this liturgy, the key first step is to recognize that we need God. We need God. And it sounds obvious, but we forget it so quickly. We need God to act. We need God to work. And sometimes we need to remind ourselves of that because for, for many of us, I think, in our church, we seem to do quite well at doing life on our own. We've got decent jobs. We've got plenty of money relative to, to the world. And we think we can organise things ourselves. We think we can be stand-up citizens that compare well with other people by ourselves. But the Psalms of Ascent remind us from the start, the get-go, we need God. We cannot be the people we ought to be. We will not be a worshipping people 
if we rely on ourselves. So, firstly, the need for God. Second thing to notice is, is their geography. Where is the psalmist? I'll notice he describes his surroundings and the people who surround him. Save me, Lord, from lying lips and from deceitful tongues. What will he do to you and what more besides you deceitful tongue? He will punish you with a warrior's sharp arrows with burning coals of the broom bush. He's surrounded by people who are liars, deceitful. He's not amongst a people who have been changed and transformed by God, who are obedient to, to God's commands. The eighth commandment, do not lie. But he's surrounded by people who are, are disobedient to that, who reject God. He's in a society, in a culture where Truth is secondary to self. And maybe, just maybe, we recognise something of that in our current society. But what else does he say? Woe to me, verse 5, that I dwell in Meshech, that I live among the t- tents of Kedar. So he mentions two places. It's a rubbish map, I'm sorry. Okay, The key thing to note... I don't know why. In my head, I was like, I'm just going to point at it. I'd forgotten that it's up there. It used to be closer. Um, okay, so Meshech is to the north of Israel. So north, sort of northeast, where it would be. Kedar would be in Arabia, as was. Okay, so south and east. These two places, it is impossible to be in at the same time. So okay, this is where we want to go. Okay, this is a song. This is poetry. What he is definitely saying is, I'm not in Israel. I'm living amongst a foreign people, a people who are not God's people, who are not obedient to God's command, who've got no interest in God. I'm not in the promised land. I'm not in the land that God has given. I'm nowhere near the temple. I'm nowhere near the place where God dwells and where God interacts with his people. Woe to me that I dwell in Meshech, that I live among the tents of Kedah. I can't be in both places. This may be a psalm that's written post-exile. So where the people of God have returned from various places. They've been spread and now they've returned. And maybe he's trying to include various groups in his song. But he's saying these places, these literal places, are far from Israel. They're nowhere near where I want to be, where I ought to be. They're far from the temple. They're far from God. And these people, liars, deceivers, not part of God's people, are those who hate peace. You see that in verse 6. Too long have I lived among those who hate peace. Why were God's people far away? Well, because of their own sin, because of God's judgment upon them, but also God's mercy. But he took them out. He didn't say to them, you're fine as you are if you've turned your back on God. There's a a sense of God's parenting there. I'm not going to allow you to get away with this and you to believe that it's okay. That's sometimes easier as a parent not to deal with it. But it's far more loving to deal with it and God has dealt with his people so that he might restore them. So it is for us. 
as we come to Psalm 120, God's people, the church, are called to live in the world, but to be distinct from it. We know something of the psalmist's heart here. To live amongst and in a world where good is called bad and bad is called good. Where people reject God and his rule. Elsewhere in the Bible, Peter describes us as aliens and strangers. Sojourners, people living where we are not eventually going to live. We are here for a time. This is where the, the liturgy starts. Recognising where we are. Acknowledging the hardship of that. And turning to God in it. Turning to God in the midst of less than ideal circumstances. Thirdly then, the third thing to notice is the desire for peace. Read verses 6 and 7 again. Too long have I lived among those who hate peace. I am for peace. But when I speak, they are for war. You can see maybe a little bit in the, uh, the English translation here, something of the poetry. And it doesn't always translate as you go from the, the, the Hebrew to the English. But you can see as he, he builds a rhythm to mention some things and then repeat it to then go on to something else. So let me point it out to you. So verse, um, verse 5. Woe to me that I dwell in Meshech, that I live, dwell, live, similar root of words uh, among the tents of Kedar. Too long have I lived. So it's like one, one, and then again, then he goes on to something else. Among those who hate peace. And then he repeats peace before going on to the final thing. So you get live, live, peace, and then peace, peace, war. Too long have I lived among those who hate peace. The thing that grabs him as he looks round at the people around him is that they are not a peaceful people. The word that he uses there for peace is shalom. So it's a, a word you maybe recognize, a Jewish word, shalom. The simple translation is, is peace. But the word has got a broader meaning than that that involves rest. It talks about being safe, secure, whole, sound. And as he looks around, or she looks around, the author of this song, one of the, the points of contact with their heart is the lack of peace. But not just peace amongst people, primarily a peace with God. When the Bible talks about peace, it says that the primary issue is not the lack of peace between people. We see that everywhere, don't we? We see it in our own relationships, with those that we love, and yet there's tension. And we see it worked out on, on a much bigger scale between different people groups, different nations. We see it within people groups, within nations. There is a striving against one another. And that's what happens when everybody has a default setting of, I'm out for me, people clash. Because there's only so much to go around. And the psalmist recognises that those that he's around, there is no peace. There is no rest. There is no wholeness and fullness. 
But he says, I recognize in myself something different. I am for peace. Peace with God. Peace with other people. There is a desire there. I think we all want peace. We want that peace with other people. There is a desire that comes through in our songs. Not Bible songs now, but secular songs. A desire for the world to be a better place, for people to get on with each other. But there's a tension that comes because because if that's going to happen, it's going to cost. We can't all get along because we don't want to give up what we've got. I am for peace, the song says. And we want to be for peace. Can we sing that? It's one of the features of the Psalms. As we come to them, as the people of God, is that we we can sing them and yet we can't. Because sometimes the, the, the songwriters of the Psalms say things that we say, yes, I agree with that, but... but probably only 70%, if I'm honest. Sometimes the Psalms are so brutal that we say, yes, I want to agree with that, but, but I don't always. I'm not all out. I'm not all out. I could, could I say I am for peace in every way? Peace. If peace is not just defined as being nice to my next-door neighbour but peace in a way where God rules and reigns over every area of my life and I submit everything that I am to his I am to his his reign where I figuratively get off the throne and allow God to be on it in every area am I for peace if that's what it means let alone every relationship that I have with people who I think that I'm better than or people who I know are in the wrong or people who I just don't get on with or people that are just deserving of a good slap around the face if I'm quite honest with myself. (coughs) There's a tension as we come to the Psalms and as we learn this liturgy where we just want to say, yes, I can sing this song, but, but not quite. Or maybe not at all. Maybe we're in the situation that as we read about these people that the psalmist is around, these people with lying tongues, who are deserving of the, the what more besides punishment, the sharp arrows. Actually, we see far more of ourselves in those, the liars, deceivers. Whether people know it or not, we know that we are involved in a, an operation of deception. Lying so that things work out better for me. Well, we read these psalms not as the people have ended, but we read them in the light of God's Saviour who has come. We read them in the light of Jesus. The psalms are the songs of Jesus, primarily. And then in Jesus, we can sing those psalms. Jesus is the one who can say, I am for peace. And he can say it wholly and truly and fully. Because Jesus is the one who brings 
peace. Jesus is the one who steps into a world that is utterly opposed to him. Utterly rejecting of him. The one who steps into the world where people will lie about him and his motives and his intentions. Where he will go on trial, literally, and people will stand and throw false accusations of him. Despite his goodness. Despite the fact that none of those accusations can stick because there is literally zero evidence that he was ever selfish. Or ever did any of the things they accused him of. Jesus is the one who brought peace. Read this from Colossians 1. Jesus, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Only of Jesus can it be said truly, only he can say, I am for peace. Because he is the one who brings peace in its fullness. Reconciling to God a broken world, a world that has rejected him, hated him, despised him. Called what he has made bad and wrong. Distorted his goodness and his beauty. And God sends his son Jesus to make peace through his blood, through the cross. Reconciling people to God doing the very work that the temple was built for to to bring together God and man and yet the temple did imperfectly Jesus did it perfectly Jesus of whom it was prophesied that he would be the prince of peace so as we sing this psalm we firstly sing it and remember Jesus and we say this is his song But because of him, we can sing it too. Because he is remaking us and renewing us, we can be a people who are for peace and can count the cost to bring peace. The Psalms, the Psalms of Ascent, help us to know Jesus better and bring us to praise him more. So we start our journey with a call for help to the Lord. We need you. We recognize that we're living in a fallen world that clashes with the Spirit of God that lives within his people. We seek peace, the peace that comes from God in Christ. And we seek that peace to reign in us and through us so that people might see in the people of God a people of peace. And we look to Jesus and we see that God has worked and is working and will win. Because the culmination of all things is the bringing together of heaven and earth. The restoring of a people who are liars and deceivers and everything else. And it brings it all together under the the reign of King Jesus. The culmination of the entire history of our world will be every person acknowledging that Jesus is Lord. Confessing him. And bowing before him. And then there will be peace. When the king reigns. But we begin to enjoy that peace. Even now. As we let Jesus reign over our lives. And we enjoy the goodness of the king. It's just a taster. Got six more weeks to come.
Let me pray. Father, we acknowledge and confess, Lord, that those words that are described of the world, those other places, Kedar, Meshech, Father, we are people who by nature are such as those. But we thank you that you have acted in Jesus to, to save us, to redeem us, to call us to be a people of peace peacemakers in this world and we thank you that you have given us these psalms to teach us to instruct us so that we might come to worship you and we might find with joy that that is what we were made for father give us a hunger a thirst to worship you more and more and father will you draw us together as we go on this journey Lord, that we would encourage and stir one another to worship. And we pray that as we worship you, that we will be distinct in this world. Father, we pray that as we worship you, we will be attractive. And that people that you are drawing to yourself will come and find peace in Christ as we witness to him. Father, we pray that our witness would go out to those around this church building here in Broome, across Rotherham, to those that we work with, those that we live with, Father, those that we spend time with week by week. We pray that more people might come to know the Prince of Peace through our witness, weak and failing as we are. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.